You're listening to the Off The Record podcast with me, Katrina Rose. Off The Record is supported by the Youth Music Initiative, which is administered by Creative Scotland and is recorded at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In this episode, Jamie Gilmore from Wrightsbridge and Emu Bands takes us through the basics of music publishing. In part one, we look at the origins of music publishing, what copyright is and what it covers, who are music makers and who are music users, and he discusses collections agencies. This is your PRS, your MCPS and your PPL. My name's Jamie Gilmore. I work with two companies, um, Wrightsbridge and Emu Bands. Uh, Wrightsbridge is a music publishing copyright administration service. Uh, it's very, very new, so you've probably not heard of it yet, but hopefully you'll hear more of it in the next few years. And Emu Bands is a digital distribution company where we distribute music onto major platforms like um, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Deezer, etc., etc. And today I'm going to speak a little bit about uh, music publishing basics. Um, I'm going to keep it really basic, and I kept the first session basic, so, and I'm not sure of what level of knowledge you guys are all at, so please don't take this as being um, patronising if I'm going over stuff that you, you already know or you've already heard. Um, you would be surprised how many people I've just taken for granted that they really know a lot about a particular subject, and then you realise halfway through the conversation that that they've kind of lost you halfway. So we will be covering quite a lot of basics today, but they're important basics. It's good to run over these things. I wrote down a like, short list of questions that I felt that you guys would maybe want to come away with the answers to from the end of this session. And uh, Again, it is publishing basics. So the top one is, what is copyright? Copyright is incredibly important, obviously, in the music publishing world. It's the foundation of the entire sector. Uh, so we will be talking about copyright today. Um, how does copyright relate to music in the music industry? Again, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we'll be looking at the various ways that copyright relates to music specifically. Um, what is music publishing and what does a music publisher do? And the last question will be, where can I learn more about music publishing? Again, because this is a kind of basic, sort of one-on-one -on -one session, um, and you have an interest in the subject by the end of this, if you want to go away and find out more, I'll hopefully be able to point you in the direction of you know, some decent resources. Okay, so copyright basics. Um, I thought it would be a good thing to start with to talk about you know, copyright and its origins. And um, if you go right back to kind of the, the sort of very first uh, copyright acts to come through, it was created as a result of the invention of a, a disturbance uh, technology. Uh, but it was a very, very long time ago. It was the Gutenberg Press in uh, 1440. Now, the Gutenberg Press isn't the first ever um, like mass-producing um, press uh, for you know, mass-producing sort of books, but it definitely was a, a large step with regards to the increase in popularity. So from about that kind of 1440, 1450 mark, you started to see people um, like mass-produce books Previous to that, it would have been something that would be done almost more like a kind of handcraft art. You would find uh, like religious scholars, etc., were, were like making and binding books. But when the Gutenberg Press came along and commercial printing became far more of a common practice, uh, it was felt that authors in particular were losing control of their works. And that led to, in the United Kingdom, 
Um, the Copyright Act uh, 1710 is also known as the Statute of Anne. Um, and again, that was the, the sort of first step towards the creation of copyright, and it did happen here in the United Kingdom. Many years later, um, in 1886, there was a thing called the Berne Convention, and the Berne Convention saw the extension of uh, music copyright and its scope a little bit, but the main thing to, to note here about the Berne Convention, it's why I put it in this particular slide, is that countries signed up to the Berne Convention and essentially what they're doing and doing that is recognising that they are going to work with copyright in their countries and they will recognise the validity of the copyright protected works that come from other countries. So for example, um, the United Kingdom and the United States are both in the Berne Convention. The United States were one of the very late countries to join it, but it means that um, UK-based copyrights are protected in the US and US-based copyrights are recognised and protected here in the United Kingdom. Um, the relevance of this will come up a wee bit later on. So, UK Copyrights, Designs and Patents Act. So that's, when I refer to copyright, because there's different legislation and different policies in all different countries in the world, uh, I want to be clear that I'm speaking about the UK-based uh, Copyright Act, and that's the current UK Copyrights, Designs and Patents Act, 1988. So what does that protect? What is copyright? So the Copyright Designs and Patents Act protects works of literature, uh, artistic works, musical works, and dramatic works. So literature is fairly straightforward. You know, it can be uh, books uh, like novels or you know plays or anything like that. Uh, any sort of text, but it also uh, protects things like lists, um, like database contents can come under literature as well. Uh, there's a lot of different things that can be protected here. Music is what we're going to be really speaking about today. So I will come into that in more detail. Uh, artistic works can be things like, you know, uh, statues, uh, paintings, works of art, etc. And dramatic works can be, you know, anything from, you know, a, a full dramatic play or it can be a piece of choreography. Um, but they are all protected under the Copyrights, Designs and Patents Act. And in order for them to qualify for this copyright protection, they have to meet a criteria. And that criteria is they have to be original, which means they're not like a copy of an existing work. You know, it's, it's, a new, it's a new work of literature, music, art, or drama. It has to be in a fixed state. Now, that means that if you improvise a play or something like that, um, at the end of that particular play, like, you don't own the copyright of that play. It's improvised. It's not in a fixed state until it's either been recorded or it's been written. Do you mean it, it, it exists in a, a very solid format? Um, it's not protected by copyright. And it also has to be created by a qualified person. So the stupid example I think I gave in the first session was uh, if a cat was to play um, some sort of notes on a piano and you recorded that, the copyright wouldn't be owned by the cat. Cats don't create copyright. They're not uh, qualified individuals, they're not qualified persons. Uh, a few years ago, there was probably quite a well-known case that you'll have heard of where there was a photographer who had uh, his camera, I think it was in the rainforest or something like that, but a monkey took like a selfie. It became quite a famous photo. Um, 
and he had claimed the, you know, the ownership of that particular copyright. Uh, but uh, Wikipedia decided that they were going to put that on Wikipedia and they were going to show it. Um, he objected to that work being used in that way because he was a copyright owner and they said, you're not the owner of that copyright. This is a public domain work. It doesn't come under copyright protection because it's not created by a qualified person. Um, there was a brief spat in court in the UK and in the US and it was unanimously agreed that there was no copyright in that particular creation because monkeys do not own copyright. Um, so if you do have a work that fits this criteria in these categories, is a fence for someone to, without permission, uh, copy, rent, lend or issue copies to perform, broadcast or show or to adapt that particular work. So that's what these are the, the things that copyright protects uh, these works from doing. It doesn't mean that people can't do those things, but it means that they do need to have permission to do them. And the last thing I wanted to mention was moral rights. Um, moral rights are different in different countries, but in the United Kingdom, um, the original creator has the right to be identified as the author. And they also have the right to object to derogatory treatment of a work. Now, within the Copyrights, Designs and Patents Act, there's a thing called fair use as well. So there are some examples of when people can use, you know, copyright protected work uh, without permission, without license, so long as it comes under this criteria of fair use. One of the things that uh, fair use covers is parody. So if you see a comedy TV show that does a kind of parody version of a song, that wouldn't necessarily require permission from the original author, so long as it's parody. Um, and again, if the original copyright owner disagreed that it was a work of parody, um, they could take that to court um, to try and have it sort of decided by a higher level. But this is copyright, and it's very, very important to understand what copyright is before we can really talk about music publishing. So within the music sector, there are two main copyrights that I think you need to be aware of. Um, within the publishing sector, there's really only one music. Publishing takes care of the musical works. So that would be the top line melody, uh, the lyrics to a work, and the chords. But it's, it's mainly the top line melody and, and the lyrics uh, are very, very important. Uh, when that work qualifies for copyright protection, which is what we covered just there, when it's in a fixed state, you and the United Kingdom are granted copyright. It's not something you need to apply for. So you hear people use the term like copyright, it's not a verb. You know, it's not something that people do, it's something that is. So you may need to prove that you're the copyright owner of a particular work, but when that criteria is filled, that it's an original work in a fixed state created by a qualified individual, there is a copyright protection on that. Um, and that lasts for 70 years from the death of the last living composer or author. Um, I'm trying not to always go back to the same examples, but a really simple example would be like the Beatles. Well, there's, there's Lennon and McCartney works, there's McCartney works, and there's John Lennon works. Um, the John Lennon works will be protected for 70 years from, you know, 
the day that he has died, or sorry, the year that he's died. Uh, whereas the Lennon and McCartney works will be protected from 70 years following the death of the last living composer author, that would be Paul McCartney, um, which is a pretty long time. So it means that the composers will benefit from the creations that they've made for their entire lives, plus they will have something to lease to their estate. Uh, sound recordings are a different copyright, often owned by different people from the original, you know, composers of the actual work, although a sound recording would naturally, in the context of the music industry, contain the musical work. It would be a, a recording of that particular song, say. Um, you could have one song that has hundreds of recordings, and all of those recordings could have different owners. And the duration of the copyright protection on that is 70 years from either the initial year of release or from the point of creation. Um, it, we usually measure it for the initial year of release. Um, so copyright licensing. So there's two groups that I want to kind of talk about to start. There's music makers, that'd be composers and authors, songwriters, and there's music users. And I want to be very clear that when I talk about music users in this context, that's not always the same as end users. You know, broadcast uh, channels like BBC, uh, Netflix is, is not necessarily a broadcaster, it's, it's, you know, it's an on-demand video service, so it's slightly different. Um, Spotify is a music user, even though they're not the, the end user, if you will, you know, they have people who use their service, same as all the others. Uh, they're the music user in this context. I have YouTube, um, O2 Academies there, um, venues for music users, uh, because they, they have music in their spaces, so that people will come in and, you know, spend money to get in and to buy drinks and stuff when they're through the doors. Uh, so music is definitely a part of their business, but they are a music user, uh, not a music maker. British Airways, if you've ever been on a long haul flight and you know you can listen to you know classic albums from the country that you're flying into or whatever, um, they need permission to be able to do that. They need permission to be able to show, to make available, um, to copy. I would imagine that obviously copies of that music somewhere on the actual flight on hard drives. Uh, Glasgow Club is uh, just a gym membership. I think that's quite a good one to have because if any of your PRS members, you will have noticed that you will get some sort of what you call analogy payments from, uh, from music that's played in gyms. Uh, Capital One is obviously quite a big radio chain. So this is just a, a sample of some of the different types of sort of music user. And the important thing here is that like copyrights there to protect the works of the music maker. The, the music maker wants the music user to use his works. Like, it's, it's essentially how he makes his living. He wants to have a certain amount of control over that. So Copyright String and Patents Act, and then that real you know, interaction in the, in the real world of how music's used. So copyright user wishes to either copy, rent, lend, or issue copies, perform broadcast or show, or adapt a particular musical work, but to do that, they require permission from the copyright owner or they're in breach of copyright. So how does that happen? So the first thing I want to kind of touch on is what we call uh, collective management organisations. And in the United Kingdom, there are three that you should know about. There's PRS for music, there's MCPS, and there's PPL. PRS stands for Performing Rights Society, uh, but it's been abbreviated PRS for music. 
Um, they deal with the performance rights licenses for music in the United Kingdom. MCPS stands for the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society. So whenever music is uh, transferred into a, a physical form, whether that be a vinyl record, uh, a CD, it could be a live DVD, um, it could be a musical birthday card, it could be anything. So long as it's physical, there's a license required for the permission to do that. MCPS would be the organisation we speak to. Um, the last is the Phonographic Performance Limited, or PPL. Now, the first two deal with the song, which we spoke about, the Life Plus 70 song. And the last year, PPL deals with recordings. They deal with you know, the recording of the song. Um, so for the money that's collected by PPL, they pay two groups of people. They pay the master recording owner, which would maybe be a record label, for example, or whoever it is that owns the rights to that recording. And they also pay the performers on that particular recording. And those performers sort of come into three different categories. There's either contracted features artists, which we call like the main artist on the CD. Um, there's non-contracted featured artists, which would be a guest artist. So if Calvin Harris is releasing a track featuring Rihanna, Calvin Harris would be, you know, the, the, feature, the contracted featured artist. The non-contracted featured artist would be presumably Rihanna, because she's the guest artist. And then anyone else who performs on that particular recording would be like a session artist, uh, unless they were in the band that's collectively known as Calvin Harris, I suppose. But those are the three different categories. Um, these guys issue licenses to music users to kind of make this... Uh, transaction between music makers and music users is kind of quick and as simple as possible. So just running down what I've kind of already touched on, you have MCPS. If you want to copy music into a physical format, then you can go to MCPS in the UK and they'll grant you a license for that. Music makers and music publishers join the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society as members and they take the money from these guys and they move it over to us. Um, Rent, uh, sorry, rent, lend, or issue copies. So rent, lend, or issue copies is taken care of both by MCPS and PRS uh, because like, the, the rent inside of things is sometimes taken care of by PRS. But again, both organisations take care of that. Most common, I'm sure you'll have encountered, is perform broadcast or show. Uh, so for example, like radio stations, public places, etc. We'll have to pay PRS for music and PPL. Um, and adapt music, none of these organisations have uh, a warrant to issue permission to adapt. That's something that has to be directly done either via the creator or via the publisher or owner. So if a copyright um, user wishes to adapt, audio-visually synchronise, exploit restricted works internationally. The internationally thing's important because PRS, MCPS and PPL are UK-based organisations. So there are some scenarios in which a music user may wish to directly licence with the original copyright owners or publishers because it lies out with the scope of a particular country um, and they may find that easier to do uh, as a direct licence. Uh, but they still need to seek permission and negotiate the terms and fees of the licence you know, with the relevant party, whether that be a publisher or whether it be the creator themselves.
So that's kind of what I wanted to really cover is to make sure that you understood that there's collective management, there's collective licensing, which is taken care of by PRS, MCPS, and PPO for recordings, um, and there's direct licensing, which is taken care of on a more kind of one-to-one -one basis. Off the Record podcast with me, Katrina Rose. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on all social media. You can find us by looking for the handle at OTR Scott. In part two, Jamie will discuss how publishing works in the real world, what music publishers do for their clients, and gives us some resources to look at and find out more. So I kind of wanted to outline how this maybe could look or could work in a more real world context. So we have a music creator, a music publisher, they're in the owners category. There's the collective management organisations like PRS and MCPS and PPL we spoke about. Uh, for publishing specific, really we're only talking about MCPS and um, PRS. Uh, they're in the licensing group. And then at the end, we have the music user. So we're just kind of expanding out that diagram of the music user and the music maker standing side by side to kind of show how the process works a little bit. Um, often a music creator will collaborate with either a music publisher or a music publisher and administrator uh, to assist them with uh, various things in their career. But right now we're really just talking about the kind of licensing process um, again, I wanted to always include the Copyright Designs and Patents Act and UK policy. That's why this system can exist, because we are afforded uh, protection from copyright um, to, you know, to mean that the music user needs to get permission in order to use uh, the music of the music creator. But that's also uh, afforded in other countries around. We talked about that at the beginning with the Berne Convention. So there's international equivalency. Oh, there's equivalency in lots of other countries. So I have the example is the UK policy, but there's also policy in different uh, countries who have signed up to the Berne Convention to recognise this. Now, when we're talking about international, sorry, we're talking about collective management organisations like PRS and MCPS, they have equivalents in other countries of the world. So they have an international network. They're... Uh, where if your music, for example, is played in the United States on a radio station, the local um, PRO will collect the license for that. They'll identify who the rights holders are, what societies they're part of, and then they'll pay that license you know, back through to the collective management organisation who pay the publisher and the creator or the creator, depending on what the setup is for the membership. Because um, I'd mentioned the publisher, um, publishers commonly have um, a network of sub-publishers, whether that be something they do internally and they have um, you know, different setups for, of their own country, company in different countries. Um, it's important that they are able to sort of branch out into other countries of the world for a, a number of reasons. Like for me, one of the most kind of important reasons I just want to touch on today is that there's not 
one international um, sort of music copyright database. There's not like one universal database everybody goes to. Um, they all have their own. So by having sub-publishers in different territories who have relationships with the collective management organisations, you're able to manage that metadata in a much better way because you're able to see that the information is accurate, do you know what I mean? And also to monitor how music's being used in that country in a way that we would expect to see payment coming through from. Um, if we're in a scenario where something needs to be directly licensed, as I'd mentioned earlier, that could either be done directly from the music user to the music publisher or to any of the sub-publishers. Um, and that, again, that's a really common thing to happen. And again, finally, you've got music user who's not necessarily the end consumer. So the music that they use, they'll use in their business and then that'll go to you know, a certain number of end users for different types of usage. Uh, the reason I wanted to put all of these people on this we board though is just to get a, give an idea of how complex this can actually get when you start to add more people and you start to add more links between countries and how easy it is for that money that should be getting generated and collected and paid to the music creator, how easy it is for that to be lost and the management of that process is very much at the core of music publishing. So what do music publishers actually do? That was one of the questions we asked ourselves at the beginning. So they provide administrative support, they provide creative support, and they can provide financial support. So insurance payment is received when copyrights are commercially exploited. You can either do that through the collective management organisations that we've touched on, or you can do it through a direct licensing deal. Um, again, publisher responsible for taking care of that and making sure that it happens the way that it should. Managing the accuracy of registration metadata relating to the client's catalogue. Sounds simpler than it actually is, but again, it's, it's very, very important because if you're going to be paid for the copyrights that you own, then people need to know that you own them and that needs to be make sure that it's, uh, that it's done accurately and in a way that the, there's no block of information to stop the money flowing back to the right people. Uh, protecting the rights of the catalogue from piracy or misuse, I think that's fairly straightforward, um, that you're you know, an advocate for the, for the music creator in that particular field. Um, license, the usage of catalogue to third parties and direct licensing deals, I've already mentioned that. Um, creative support, I mean, there's a number of different creative things that publishers can do to help they are writers, whether it be looking for uh, new opportunities for them to work or looking for various uh, co-writers then to collaborate with or just sort of helping them extend their network and their knowledge uh, across the sort of greater music sector as a whole. The final one would be financial support. Uh, depending on the kind of publishing deal you have, you may sell um, your rights to, or the exclusive right to publish uh, your works to a publisher for a amount of money that could support you, you know, and make you live long enough that you'll be able to kind of continue to work and write and focus on your craft. Um, or it could be done in, in various, various other ways, um, like publishing administration is essentially what we do, so we don't provide that kind of advanced support, but we do make sure that we're very proactive in making sure that any money that has been uh, paid to any society for the usage of your music or any user of your music 
who has perhaps not paid a licence, uh, that money's collected and uh, is paid to them so that they can continue to do what they do. So, what is copyright? Um, it's when a work of literature, music, um, dramatic work or an artistic work um, takes a fixed form, is created by a you know, qualified individual. Um, how does it relate to the music industry? We have copyright in songs and lyrics. We also have copyright in recordings. Uh, what is a music publisher? And what does a music publisher do? Again, a music publisher manages that licensing process and works with um, writers to maximise opportunities in their career. And where can I learn more about music publishing? So we have a website called rightsbridge.com. There's actually not a lot of information on there just now, but in the coming months you'll start to see more things. Rightsbridge is a really new organisation uh, that me and my business partner started two years ago. But we spent the majority of our time uh, building like an online platform so that all of our clients can you know, sign into this platform, see all of the assets that they've created, uh, see all of the metadata for the assets, and see how each of them have been earning in different territories. Uh, so that's taken quite a long time to build, but we're beta testing that at the beginning of December. Uh, I think we're going to beta test it for a good six months, and then we will launch uh, to sort of general public. But even in that beta testing period, um, we'll start to make more resources like these kind of talks uh, available to the general public. Our sort of idea is that we want to help people understand, manage, and monetize their uh, copyrights and music. And like the understand part of that is, again, very, very important to us. At Record of the Day website, it's also a mailing list. It's where uh, I receive all of my information on music industry news. It comes in your inbox you know, every day, weekdays, and it is an incredibly important resource. If you don't want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can also just visit the website and it's got loads of really good articles letting you know what's been going on in the music sector generally, but it does have a lot of music industry publishing um, stories. Music Week is exactly the same in that sense. It's a great resource for news and information for things that are happening in the sector. It's essentially the UK's um, trade magazine. Music Publishers Association. Uh, I'm a member of the Music Publishers Association and have found them to be incredibly helpful. Um, and if you're interested in either becoming a publisher or just finding out more about publishing generally, um, they're a really, really good organisation I would recommend you check out. And there's PRS for Music. And PRS for Music as an organisation administrate both PRS and MCPS. And by going through their website, you'll be able to see, I mean, there's so much information on there that you could spend forever, you know, but you can find out about the different tariffs that they issue to music users and you can find out about the different ways that music can be used either through MCPS or PRS uh, just by really checking out that site. Yes? Yeah, so if someone has registered their work in another country, does he have to do it as well, like here in the UK? So they, they shouldn't have to register it because there is that international network of collective management organisations. Um, so the way that it would work is that every work, so let's just call it a song just now, uh, has a unique identifier, and the unique identifier is called an International Standard Work Code, it's an ISWC. So when a music user, let's say a Spotify type music user, uses a particular piece of work, um, they need to know, you know, 
who owns the copyright to that. So the first thing they need to go and do is see if from the metadata that they have available, which will have been sent to them, say, through a music distributor, uh, if they can identify the international standard work code for that particular work. If that doesn't exist, then they contact an organisation called CZAC, or a pan-European organisation who work with collection societies. And then an ISWC will be allocated to that. So the, it should flow back to your society because CZAC will be able to tell, you know, this particular writer, this particular work belongs to this society and they send that information out to the relevant countries, you know, that are essentially using that music. But the issue can come in with regards to the accuracy of that metadata because it's not as if uh, the... I mean, I also work for a music distributor, so I should be careful here, but the accuracy of the metadata that's given to the music distributor by the person who owns the recording might not necessarily be correct. It might not necessarily be up to date. And that process of identifying the correct ISWC, it might, might not happen correctly. So with regards to publishers and with regards to rights administration generally, you don't have to be registered in every country, but you should be in a position where you can check the main countries the works are being exploited to just make sure that it's accurate. Um, and that can be done. But yeah. Hi. If you ever have to prove copyright for whatever reason, how would you go about doing that? Brilliant question. Really, really good question. Um, so there's an old, uh, an old story you've probably heard where it's, if you write a new work, the way that you would copyright it would be to you know, send yourself a, a copy in the post through registered mail and put it in a bank vault. And you know, there's all these different things you hear. The truth of the matter is, to my understanding, none of those methods have been tried in court. Uh, generally, when those kind of issues come up with regards to copyright breach, it's due to the fact that our work has already been exploited. So it's a case-for-case -case basis, I would think. If it was, if it was to do with something like a, a friend of yours had stolen your particular piece of work, I think it'd be a really difficult thing to prove. But Really, the, the process of exploiting your work and, and kind of putting it out there really just strengthens your case. But if it came to that kind of dispute, it would no doubt go to court. podcast with me Katrina Rose. Thanks to Jamie Gilmore of Wrightsbridge and Emu Bands. You can find out more about Off The Record on our social media pages. Just look for our handle at otrscot or our website www.otrscot.com. Off The Record is supported by the Youth Music Initiative which is administered by Creative Scotland and is recorded at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh.